And indeed, I am honored now for the next few minutes to be speaking with Jonathan Kozal, who is uh, the author of uh, a number of different books, including now a book called Letters to a Young Teacher, published by Crown, uh, in which we can read some of the letters which uh, he wrote to a, a young teacher who contacted him, someone he calls in the pages of this book, Francesca. That is not her name, and uh, she remains an anonymous figure, but uh, the catalyst for some very, very uh, helpful letters that, uh, that Jonathan Kozal has written uh, for the young teacher just starting out in this uh, paramountly important uh, uh, vocation. Uh, Jonathan Kozal, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks very much. And I'm, um, I'm glad you said what you did about my new book. The, the whole point of Letters to a Young Teacher is to present a kind of tribute, but also an invitation to what I believe to be admittedly very difficult, but still beautiful profession. Mm. I, I think, I think um, teaching children in our public schools, and especially teaching young children, is one of the best ways a human being could spend their life. And um, I began as a teacher myself, uh, teaching little kids in inner city schools, all black schools. And now this young teacher, this wonderful young teacher, um, wrote to me, and she um, was teaching also at an all-black school in Boston, my hometown, in a neighborhood not far from where I'd started out 40 years before. So she said, would you come and visit my class? Lots of teachers asked me to do that, and I did. And, of course, as soon as I arrived, she put me to work because teachers... Um, I love it the way teachers knock me off my pedestal. You know, I don't like to be treated as a author or some kind of expert. They say, don't just stand there. Do something. Yeah, help, grab those help, paints or whatever. Help my kids. Help yeah. my kids. In fact, then, you... when, then when I did it wrong, actually, I made the first thing she asked me to do, I messed it up. She scolded me in front of the children. I love that. She's a, you know, 24 years old, and she, she said, um, Mr. Jonathan, since the kids couldn't pronounce Kozal, my last name, she said, Mr. Jonathan is, is, did not pay attention. He is not behaving like a grown-up. What should we do to punish him? <laughs> and the kids voted I needed a timeout. <laughs> I love little kids. And she just, she's one of these glowing souls that, you know, the kind of teacher you, little kids will remember their whole lives. Um, just flooded her room with um, poetry and, and wonderful poetry. Not you know, lots of African American poetry, but also she uh, she was immersed in in great literature herself. So she was reading these little first graders poetry by William Butler Yeats, and um, but you come in the room and it be flooded with music like. Brahms and Rachmaninoff, and she absolutely refused to drill her children for examinations, for tests. She she hated this law, no child left behind. She refused to impose that kind of um, drill and kill routine to get the kids ready for their tests, and despite that, almost all her kids did very well in their exams, which um, it 
tribute, I think, to her enormous creativity because she worked hard. She just, she just would not. She, she refused to impose a kind of proto-military regime on these kids, which is very, very common now in inner-city schools. She was, uh, uh, of course. Uh coming to you for advice, although it sounds like she was a very gifted teacher with a lot of wonderful instincts. And one of your most central points of advice for her and other young teachers is the idea of establishing chemistry uh, between yourself and the student, uh, as opposed to the often uh, advised uh, protocol of starting out tough, sticking to the curriculum, that sort of thing. You suggest instead entrapping them first in fascination. I love the way you put that. Absolutely. I think especially with young kids in oh anywhere from kindergarten to fourth grade, it's very, very important to convince them right from the start that learning is exciting, that it's a joyful, mysterious, um, um, exhilarating experience. And she conveyed that to them. She had this sense of jubilation in her. She just um, she, first of all, she was enormously happy to be in the company of children, and people who aren't shouldn't shouldn't teach school. I don't think. Uh, fortunately, there are thousands like her nowadays. But she, um, th- there's a special. I talk about the chemistry that evolves, the kind of mystical chemistry of trust and love that evolves between a good teacher and her students, and. It's a very beautiful thing to see, especially in those early grades. When they come to you in September, they're little strangers. In June, you cry because you don't want to say goodbye to them. And I tell teachers that that chemistry is more important than anything else. Hmm. Don't let any of these tough testing demands that are coming down from Washington interfere with that. Don't let anything ruin that chemistry. If you lose that, you lose everything. You, As you describe this in, in various chapters, the unfolding of this relationship, this chemistry, I think one of the most telling moments is when you talk of the importance of those small little moments when a, a young child might reveal to a teacher some sort of secret. You say some children who reveal their secrets to us in these hesitant and bashful ways seem to feel empowered later to reveal themselves in more outgoing ways as they begin to gain the literary skills to write in classroom journals, for instance, or maybe make their first attempts at at poetry. I mean, I think that's such an important bit of advice because that's the sort of thing, the, the importance of which might not maybe be immediately apparent to a young teacher. That's right. And one reason is that uh, young teachers nowadays, again, I don't like to harp on this repeatedly, but um, the law no child left behind has had a very damaging effect in this in this respect. They, the law requires that teachers stick to a very tight timetable. And I might say, um, you know, the whole idea of the law is that teachers need to be held accountable for their for their success. And I don't know any teacher who's afraid to be held accountable, but they want to be held accountable for the right things. And what happens in many of these inner city schools in Milwaukee, for example, in Chicago, in in New York, is that because the demands that the state 
requires the state standards, as they're called, which are um, enforced at the national level by the federal law, no child left behind, there's very tight timing in the classroom. You've got to deliver this specific skill at 9.35 in the morning. And um, what happens is that, you know, little kids are determined to subvert our lesson plans <laughs> because they want to tell us something interesting that happened to them that comes right out of their heart. So little boy raises his hand and says, Teacher, um, you know, my grandma died yesterday and I want and he wants to tell her about this and she feels I mean Francesca would listen, but many teachers feel I can't listen to this because if some supervisor comes around and checks on my classroom, I won't be on the required skill for that moment, that minute of the day. And so she has to cut him off. If she listens, you'll often find that at the end of those delectable run-on sentences at which little children are so good, there's a real piece of hidden treasure where that child reveals something about himself. Let's say it's a little boy, something deep and important to his soul. And good teachers seize upon that moment as a, as a key to unlock motivation in the child. Uh, but in too many of these inner city schools now, the the teacher's afraid to do that. She has to cut him off. And so she never she never finds that that secret in his soul. Um, I was strongly influenced. If this may surprise many of your listeners, I was I was strongly influenced by a man I believe to be the probably the best educator of young children of the past fifty years in the United States. And this was not some academic person. This was Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, hmm. who um came with me up to the South Bronx, where several of my books take place in New York City, to meet the children I was writing about. And he always said to me, listen to these children, listen to them, don't rush them, give them a chance so they can they can reveal themselves to hmm. you. I like how you say about Mr. Rogers, you say Mr. Rogers' legacy is viewed as soft and too impressionistic in an age when very hard and measurable outcomes have been stringently demanded by the overseers of public education, uh, whose certitude about the practices that they enforce seems nearly absolute. You are really fervently hoping that, uh, at least to some extent, we can return more to uh, uh, the view that people like Fred Rogers have about what is most important in education. Absolutely, and I'm uh, my whole book, Letters to Young Children, is dedicated to that ideal, but I'm also fighting politically. I've spent a great deal of the past summer in Washington talking with the um, members of the Senate who and the House who are going to decide... Um, in uh, the next few months, whether to repeal this federal law or to continue it or to revise it dramatically. And uh, as a matter of fact, 
a few weeks from now, I'm going to meet with the probably the most influential member of the Senate who chairs the Education Committee, and that's Senator Ted Kennedy. To, 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 we have a date set to, in which I want to convince him that Senate and House absolutely need to reduce the, the, the testing mania. Uh, they, ought to, they ought to reduce it drastically. And, um, and instead of putting all the pressure on a one-time examination in order to measure whether a child is learning or whether a school or teacher is any good, <laughs> they, ought to, they ought to look at more important things, such as how many children are in that classroom? Are we giving these poor kids the same wonderful small class size of 17 or 18 children that you'd see in the rich suburbs? Are we packing 30, 35 kids into each room? Hmm. How many of these kids are getting preschool? Are, um, because we know the affluent typically give their children two or three years of wonderful preschool, whereas the inner city kids get almost nothing. Um, unless you give universal preschool to these poor kids, then when you test them on exams a few years later, you're testing rich kids on twice as much education as the poor children have received. So I'm also um, actually demanding that Senator Kennedy write into this law, which I left behind, a provision that, um, that states have to guarantee at least two years of rich developmental preschool to all low-income children before they can give them the standardized exam. Hmm. I want to mention that your, your, your book focuses on a number of specific issues, which unfortunately we have, have no time to talk about today, but things like uh, focus on diversity and uh, the state of high schools and middle schools and so on, all kinds of interesting information. I actually want to close with something else, though, um, something in which you, you celebrate uh, the, 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 the attitude and perspective of this young teacher with whom you corresponded. Oh, yeah. you, you say, one of the reasons why I have found our conversations and our correspondence so refreshing, this is, again, speaking to Francesca, is that you enjoy so much the small realities and daily misadventures, even the wet and messy ones yeah. that take place in the classroom with your children. And of, those are probably very, very important words of, of reassurance and, and encouragement that, that teachers not sweep those kind of moments aside, but embrace them as being central sometimes to the, the whole experience of teachers and children. Yeah, she once said to me, when one of her children um, peed or something like that in his pants, because he's a little baby, she said, six-year-olds are leaky little people. <laughs> <laughs> and the way she said that showed that she loved them completely. And I say to teachers, um, you're in a tough time right now. It's a tough era where people are threatening your profession. There's enormous political contempt for teachers. I hear it in Washington all the time. And there's a strong movement, the voucher movement, to try to uh, basically dismantle public education and throw away this great legacy that we've been given as Americans. But I say to teachers, despite all of that, hold up 
sense of delight and joy in being in being a teacher and no matter what's going on on the political front bring your own beautiful personality into that classroom flood that classroom with 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 all the treasures of poetry and everything that you've loved in your own life and don't and don't ever don't let anybody um don't let anybody take that away from you. That's because if teachers aren't happy in the classroom, they're not going to be good teachers, and they're going to quit. We want to keep them. We've got to enable them to enjoy that same sense of jubilation that I described throughout this book. The book, again, is called Letters to a Young Teacher, published by Crown. Jonathan Kozal, I appreciate you joining me today on The Morning Show, and very best wishes to you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.